With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe-Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lock-away channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Carmen Maria Machado's new memoir, In the Dream House, is as beautiful as it is haunting. By telling the story of an abusive relationship between Machado and another woman, it offers a compelling meditation on desire, power, wanting to be wanted, and the complexity of who gets cast as a villain. Carmen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I could not put In the Dream House down. It is incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. I loved it. You are obviously a very gifted storyteller. You and I, both Cuban, more specifically, both have Cuban fathers. Cubans are storytellers. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Tell me about an early memory you have of learning or experiencing the power of storytelling. Who in your life was a good storyteller? Oh, my grandfather, um, my dad's father, he actually passed away this year. So I've been thinking about him. You know, he had dementia. And at the end, there was something really hard about that person who was so, like, alive and so and would tell stories. And, you know, to see that person sort of diminished in that way towards the end of his life was, like, very difficult. But when I was a kid, my grandfather was, like, the most exciting person in the whole world. I mean, he would tell really great stories about Cuba and about, you know, coming to the United States. So there was this giant ceramic St. Bernard statue in their house who they called okay. Bruno. <laughs> and what he said to me one time was he explained that he was walked past a store and he saw it for sale and he bought it. And then he um, got a little cart to put it on and put like a leash around its neck. And then he called my grandmother to come pick him up. And so as she was like driving up, she saw him standing with his like what looked like, you know, a giant dog like sitting down next to him. And she really did not like dogs and was very upset. And then when she got closer, realized that it was just this bit, you know, he was doing a bit. (laughs) 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 And it's funny because now my sister has that very, very battered Bruno, the the ceramic St. Bernard in her home. So, yeah, my grandfather was always like telling stories about his childhood, doing bits like, you know, he had this just like narrative energy to him that 
I sort of took for granted in a way. Like, I didn't really realize that that wasn't how everybody mm-hmm. was for a long time. I miss him a lot. So my Cuban grandmother had dementia at the end of her life. And dementia is hard, period. But I think it's also extra hard when that person is your last bridge back to a place that you don't otherwise have a connection to. Yeah. Yeah. My brother and I went to Cuba a couple years ago. And I remember coming back and trying to talk to my grandfather about it. And he was better. You know, he wasn't as bad as he was before he died. But he was sort of in the beginning of dementia. And I would sort of you know, try to talk to him about, like, you know, we saw your house, granddaddy. Like, we saw the square in Santa Clara. Like, we saw, you know, your school. We saw this and that. And But he, he don't think he quite registered exactly what was sort of happening. And it's strange because, like, for some reason, it's such a strong part of my identity. I think because I had such a strong relationship with my grandfather. And he embodied this part of himself and this history and this country where until a few years ago I had never been so powerfully and so strongly that, I I don't know, it just always felt like very like a connection that I had. When was your first inkling that you were a storyteller? Oh, God. I mean, I mean, I I just think I was one of those kids that had like a narrative instinct. I mean, kids play, you know, kids Mm -hmm. create story kind of instinctively. You know, I had very elaborate narratives with my Barbies and my dinosaurs (laughs) and my, you know, stuffed animals. And I remember one time a babysitter catching me making my dolls talk and then I got very embarrassed. But yeah, I mean, I read voraciously. I wrote constantly. I told stories to myself. No, I love the image of you writing to the head of Scholastic because you found their address in the Babysitter's (laughs) Club book and submitting your uh, first chapter. Yeah, some teacher taught me, like, writing a letter and that was like giving me the keys to to the kingdom I know I was like nobody ever wrote back I was like you can write a letter to literally anyone if you have their address I'm still waiting for Anna Martin to send me (laughs) to respond to my letter well I wrote yeah so I I, and they explained to me they were like you know you all publishers like their addresses in the front of the book and I was like what like the only author who ever responded was um, I don't know if you remember Olivia Bitten Jackson Mm -mm. she's written a lot of books for young people about the holocaust and she'd written this book called I Have Lived a Thousand Years. She talks about how she had this book of poems that she had written. And when the book was over, I was extremely concerned that she never mentioned in the book that she recovered her poems that were lost. And I was very upset about this. And so I wrote her a letter, um, care of her publisher, like my teacher had shown me. And then maybe like a month later, my mother came in and she said, there's a letter for you from Israel <laughs> like in the mailbox. And um, yeah, she had written back and she'd, you know, she's like, my publisher forwarded your wonderful letter to me. Like, thank you so much for writing. And, you know, to answer your question, no, I didn't. I never did get the, uh, the poems mm-hmm. back. But and it was like someone reached back. You write. I didn't date when most people dated. When other teenagers were figuring out what good and bad relationships looked like, I was busy being extremely weird, praying a lot, getting obsessed with sexual purity. So you walk Mm. us through that experience and an emotional affair you have um, with a member of the church. But have you figured out the origin story for how you ended up there? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny because... I mean, like, I feel like I've talked through so much of this in, like, in therapy, you know, being like, yeah, what is this, where did this come from? I mean, I, I mean, I think I really wanted to be loved. I think I wanted to be admired and I wanted to be the center of someone's world mm. and I wanted to feel good and I wanted to have sex. You know, I wanted to, to feel desired and wanted and, and had all those sort of normal, like, sort of you're a teen and you're like figuring out your body and you're figuring out what mm-hmm. you want and. 
But why the obsession with sexual purity? What had brought mm. you there? I mean, I experienced sexual violence as like a young person. And I think the way that my brain sort of processed that was the thing you did wrong was you wanted this thing. Like you wanted mm. something um, sexual. And I had this really good friend and we were both in church together and we just got really, really fixated on this. There was this book that we read called And the Bride Wore White. It was just all about like purity for young people. And that idea just become, became very like central to like, you know, this way of discipline, this way of like disciplining the self and, and very neatly sort of fit in with like, I sort of had fallen in with this gang of evangelicals in my, in my school. And yeah, and it just everything sort of came together in this way, you know, and I, I was like, ah, this is the thing that I need to sort of keep myself safe and protect myself. The woman you write about in the dream house, first relationship you have with a woman. Mm-hmm. Did you identify as queer before that? I did. You know, it's funny because when I was in high school, there was one girl in particular that I really wanted to kiss all the time. She was like a really good friend. And I didn't understand what that meant. I guess I thought like, oh, it's just normal to want to kiss your friend. You know, because I knew I liked boys. But I also like would think about kissing this person, but like couldn't like connect the dots exactly. And so I got to college and I actually had this really dear, dear friend, Anne, who rolled into college, like identifying as bisexual, being her total self. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's what I am. Like, I, I remember just having this, like, sense of clarity where I was like, oh, it all makes sense to me now. And then I was like, ah, now everything will be fine because <laughs> I figured it out, <laughs> you know, but, like, not having yet processed, like, you have a lot of insecurities about your body and, like, you know. Let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> because this deeply resonated with me. I just want you to read this entire section for me. Oh, yeah. Dream house as luck of the draw. Part of the problem was, as a weird fat girl, you felt lucky. She did what you'd wished a million others had done, looked past arbitrary markers of social currency and seen your brain and ferocious talent and quick wit and pugnacious approach to assholes. And when you started writing about fatness a long time ago in your live journal, a commenter said to you that you were pretty and smart and charming, but as long as you were Zoftig, you'd never have your choice of lovers. You remember feeling outrage and then processing the reality, the practicality of what he'd said. You were so angry at the world. You wondered when she came along if this was what most people got to experience in their lives, a straight line from want, dissatisfaction, desire manifested and satisfied in reasonable succession. This had never been the case before. It had always been fraught. How many times had you said, if I just looked a little different, I'd be drowning in love. Now you got to drown without needing to change a single cell. Lucky you. A straight line from want to satisfaction. Mm -hmm. What did her attraction do for your self-esteem? I mean, I felt really good. I think I feel the way you always feel when somebody's like, I want you. Where you're like, oh, me? (laughs) Wow, okay. Because she was so, like, she was, I was like, she's so hot. I'm so confused. I don't understand. I just look back at my... 20s. And I think about the amount of time I spent trying to sell myself with almost no regard for whether or not I wanted to buy. Yeah. That I was like, oh, you like hiking? I could learn to like hiking. As opposed to being like, I don't like hiking. I'm never going to like hiking. (laughs) Like, let me just stand in this truth and be who I am. And then you can decide whether or not you want that. But that wanting to be wanted became its own 
exercise. Of course. Yeah, when I think about being in my 20s and didn't have sex and start dating until I was like 20, 21, I, I had the same way where I was sort of just like, oh, like, if that's what you want, that's what I can do. Yeah, and I think for, for her, and I remember thinking like, this is what I've been waiting for the whole time has been this person and this experience and, you know, somebody who wants me in this way and isn't saying to me, like, you need to be different somehow. Because in the beginning, this wasn't, you know, she was just like, you're perfect, you're smart, you're gorgeous, you're hot, you're sexy, like, this is all I want. And I was like, okay, here I am. <laughs> here I am, you know. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the elephant and Freddy the duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Is there something that's getting in the way of your happiness or that's preventing you from achieving your goals? I have found that talking with someone can make a big difference, but sometimes the logistics, like finding the right person or the time to connect, make things complicated. BetterHelp Online Counseling connects you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp's licensed professional counselors specialize in everything from depression to relationships to complicated family dynamics, self-esteem, grief, you get it. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. They even have financial aid for those who qualify. Best of all, it's an affordable option. Latina to Latina listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code LATINA. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash Latina. Fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor. That's betterhelp.com slash Latina.
What were the first few months of that relationship like? I I mean, they were great. In retrospect, there were a lot of red flags. But at the time, I was like on cloud nine. I mean, I was so happy. Because there's an early sort of plot twist, which is when you meet this woman, she has a girlfriend. Yes. She then tells you that she's in an open relationship with the girlfriend. Mm -hmm. You sort of go through the whole rigmarole of imagining a future where it is the three of you. Mm -hmm. But then she comes to you and says, okay, I'm ready to be monogamous with you. Yes. Which must feel like being chosen. That's exactly what it felt like. Then there's bliss. And then when do things turn? Well, looking back on it, things were turning the whole time. I mean, even before that happened, even before we sort of went monogamous, I mean, I think there was this... She became a little less judicious about her anger and she became a little less patient and a little more sort of quick to sort of snap and quick to bite. And there was this really early incident very early on in retrospect, again, in retrospect, like where um, she she didn't know where I was and she was really upset. And when she saw me again, she got like furious. And I remember her screaming at me so much. And I remember saying like, being so scared and being like, don't do that. Like, don't talk to me like that. It's not okay how you're talking to me. This is like really bad. And I remember her like leaning over and being like, you can never write about this ever. Do you understand me? And I was like, yeah. And that was like early. Like that was like, it was a few months into the relationship. And I remember thinking like, that's a weird fluke, but it's just a fluke, you know? And I think, I mean. When you spent years coming up with excuses for what were flukes and how you could explain things. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, every time something happened and every time it got worse, I would think to myself, like, there's got to be a really logical explanation. Mm -hmm. So I remember, like, I talk in the book about probably one of the one of the worst and scariest part things, which was like two incidents that happened where she got very violent, like physically violent and really scary. And I like ran and like hid myself, like locked myself in the bathroom. And and both times she claimed to have no memory. Like after it happened, she would say like she would be like, why are you crying? I don't remember anything like what's wrong. And. I remember, like, Googling, like, memory. Like, I was just, like, there must be some explanation, you know. And I was looking up. I was, like, could she be having some kind of, like, you know, mental illness? Like, could something be really wrong? Could she have, like, hurt her head? Like, I was desperately scrabbling Mm -hmm. to come up with some kind of explanation which would take the burden of responsibility off of her. Like, that it wasn't her bad behavior. When did you finally identify and then verbalize those experiences as abuse? It was after we broke up. I was on my way to this workshop in San Diego. So I was living in Iowa at the time, and I there's this thing called Clarion. It's a, a science fiction and fantasy writers workshop in San Diego every summer, and it was the year that I was going to go. And so I drove from Iowa to San Diego, and on the way I stopped at some friends, like stopped at various friends' houses along the way as I drove, and like a friend of mine, like telling her, though I hadn't seen her in a while, and I sort of told her the whole story, and and she like started talking to me, you know. She, I, people just were kind of giving me little bits of like kind of language or like ways to think about it and she gave me like a book to look at and then I talked to a couple of people about it and then I remember one of them um, sent me this really beautiful essay by Connor Habib he's this really beautiful writer Um, he's also a, a adult performer and he's he had written this like devastating essay about a boyfriend who who put him in the hospital and I remember being like, I have just never read anything like this. And mm. I don't know. And then, yeah, at some point in there, like, I, I think the word. And then when I started describing it, it was like, oh, I'm just describing an abusive relationship. Like, I, and it's like I've walked other people through this. Like, I've had mm-hmm. other people say to me, like, 
this is what happened to me. And being like, oh, that's like a very classic presentation. So so I think, yeah, at some point I just got enough distance where I was like, you know, it was like in that summer where I just sort of really started thinking about it. You write, I enter into the archive that domestic abuse between partners who share a gender identity is both possible and not uncommon and that it can look something like this. Why do we assume safety in lesbian relationships? I think because, <laughs> and I say this as somebody who has dated both men and women, like I think dating men is like having a low-level cold all the time. There's always this sort of little bit of patriarchy that's like kind of dragging. And it's just the way it is, you know? It's like even if the guy is like great, you're, you're still sort of negotiating like male bowl. I, wait, I can't. I probably can't swear. No, go ahead. <laughs> can I? Yeah, you're like you're constantly negotiating male bullshit like all the time, right? And and I think that there's something really lovely about like when you're in a relationship with a woman, like that particular dynamic. It's not like in your home, you know. Like it's not like sort of in your bed. It's not in this. So there's this like distance you have from it, and a lot of the language that like surrounds like you know discussions of like queer women's relationships is like of like a utopia and a paradise where you're like ah oh, here we are we found it it's great sex is great the lesbian paradise the lesbian utopia. Did you have reservations about casting another queer woman as a villain in this story? I mean, I think she cast herself as a villain. But, yeah, I did have a lot of anxiety about it. I mean, I think if you ask any person who belongs to any sort of like... Um, marginalized group. Yeah, marginalized group. Like, you, you know, you like it's really tricky to like quote unquote like air dirty laundry you know the idea of saying like it's not perfect it's not great like or I mean it's great in a lot of ways but also like it can be bad and like this is how it can look and right and you write beautifully about the fact that to complicate the experience is to actually acknowledge the humanity yeah right it's yeah like there there yeah. is a more there's not a one-dimensional queer experience totally and I think I mean, even now it's funny because people think like, oh, you guys got marriage, right? So like, you're great. And it's like, oh, no. Like, you know, I mean, right now the Supreme Court is like deciding stuff about, you know, queer um, people and trans people like in terms of employment, like their ability to be fired. And like we are all still not in a place of safety. And we're like and it's hard because it's like, yeah, I talk about in the book how like you deserve rights because you deserve them because you're a human being, not because you've proven yourself to be good or virtuous in some way. But I think there's a lot of stress and strain around like proving a certain kind of goodness or like you're worthy of the things that you're not being given by like dominant culture or you're not being given by your government or you're not being given by whatever. So like that to me was something that was like kind of like on my mind, mm. you know, because all this was happening. The events of this book were happening around like the marriage equality conversation. Right. And like it was weird how that was kind of existed all around me while I'm afraid to say like I am being hurt in many ways by like this, this woman that I'm dating. Um, so there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure to like perform virtue. I just want to say, because this this is such heavy topic area, such important topic area, there's a lot of levity in this book. <laughs> like, I feel like you sort of throw a lifeline to the reader to be like, I know that this is, it was hard to live, it was hard to write, and yeah. so it must be a little hard to read. I imagine it's very hard to read. People keep telling me that they've, they've read it in like in one sitting, and I'm I, like, yes, really? Yes. <laughs> it's very suspenseful, and the way you play with form keeps it very interesting. Mm-hmm. You said in another interview that writing in the dream house, quote, kind of killed a little part of you. Mm -hmm. How so? 
I mean, the process of writing the book was very difficult. I was not in a good, a good place writing it. It was really hard. And I think... Wait, why? Well, logistically speaking, I actually like went to a went to a residency, so I was like away from my my spouse, which was like really difficult. And I don't mind. I actually really love being like out in the wilderness writing, but it was really hard to do it. Like with fiction, it's like not a big deal. It's actually quite useful for me. But I just, you know, every day it was just like pulling teeth, and at the end of the day, I would just be exhausted. And and also, they were residencies that didn't have any like, um, you know, sometimes with the residency, you'll have like a social thing. Like it'll be like you'll have dinner with the other residents in the evening. But neither of the residencies I did had that. And so I would oh like goodness, make dinner. So yeah, I was really isolated, and I would like make dinner and just be like thinking about the book as I was like cooking, and then I would like do the dishes, and then I would be like, well. I guess I'll just go back to my computer. So I would, like, make a drink, and then I would go, like, sip on my computer and just, like, stare at it. And then as I was writing it, I was like, this sucks. Yeah. Like, this really sucks. Not, like, the book, and the book is good. That's not, it's not even that. It's just, like, this hurts. Writing about this old self is, like, really painful and embarrassing. And, like, I mourn for her. Like, I mourn for this person who isn't even around anymore, you know? She's just, like, stuck in this, like, eternal second-person present tense, like, just running on this hamster wheel of the past and, like, is just confused and is, you know... And I'm, like, pounding on the glass and trying to, like, say something to her. Like, it's going to be fine. Like, you're going to be okay. You're going to be so happy. You don't even know. And I can. I can't reach her. And, and, And I think acknowledging that and acknowledging, like, the things in me that have been shaped forever by this experience, which is just, like the human condition it's like things happen to you you're different that's just what it is but there was something about like realizing like the ways in which like these weird little like ruts that she'd sort of carved in me and these like habits that she'd ingrained in me and like realizing that that was sort of permanent there's just such universality in specifics like this is not my story right I did not live through this but the experience of wanting to go back to a younger self and warn them or tell them something and knowing and you say this in the dream the message is undeliverable right Mm -hmm. there were other people who were telling you Carmen this is not a good relationship Carmen this is toxic and they couldn't reach you you couldn't have reached yourself yeah I talk in the book, you know, about the Novakov self-consistency mm-hmm. principle of time travel, this idea that, you know, even if time travel were possible, that, like, it would, be, it would be impossible to go back in time and, like, change events that have already happened because, like, they've by definition they've happened. And so you just can't – you can't do that. And I think that was, like, a, a metaphor that really stuck with me because I was like, yeah, like, I can't – I can't undo it, you know. There's nothing I can do about it and, like – and that's really scary and sad, but also is is it's just the way it is, you know. Novikov, which is a very hard thing to say with a New Jersey accent, <laughs> thank you, is an excellent segue into the fact that a, a lot of playing with form here, a lot of first person narrative, but also a lot of intellectual analysis and rigor mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. questions of love, villains, queerness. What did you want to achieve by doing that? I think a thing, a kind of violence that people experience, people of all different sort of identities, is when you were told, like, you were told implicitly or explicitly that you are the only one or that your experience is, mm. is has no precedent and there's no place for it in the, in the narrative. And so in this book, I was really interested in, like, taking pop culture and music, like, music and film. And, I like, mean, you've ruined a ton of Disney movies for me. Like, I now <laughs> am going to look at all the villains. 
And understand the ways in which they're playing on stereotype and trope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess I just wanted to sort of like say like, let me let me try to like bend all this toward me um, and like show how I give myself the context that nobody else would give me. And that just became it just became really important. You once in the book, if I read it as carefully as I think I read it, refer to yourself as ethnically ambiguous, but you never really refer to yourself as being Latina. Mm -hmm. You can talk to me about that choice. Like my relationship with my racial identity is complicated because I look white. I present as white. People assume that I'm white. I actually had this like very weird experience where somebody recognized me in a store in Philadelphia and then was like, I just, I wasn't sure it was you because all white people look alike. And I wanted to correct them, but then I felt weird because this person was not, I was like, I uh, I don't know, you know, and like kind of just hemmed and hawed and then like just, you know, whatever. But like, so it's complicated because it's like I have a lot of privileges that come with like being white presenting. Yeah, and, but also like I'm not white and that's actually really important to me. Like it's important to my identity and the way that I feel about myself and the way I feel about my family and the way I see myself and I just sort of don't know like what to make of it or I just haven't gotten to a place where I feel like comfortable writing about it more explicitly but it is something that I'm thinking about very actively and I've started many essays right. <laughs> which I, I have finished. <laughs> I personally hope you get to the place where you figure out what you want to say about it because I want to yeah. read it and I want to see that placed in the canon. Yeah. You're now married. Yes. And there's a complicated element to this piece of the story, which is that when you meet the woman in the dream house, she's in an open relationship with a woman named Val. Mm-hmm. You are now married to Val. Yes. I had to read that about 10 times before <laughs> my brain would fully compute that. Where do you place all of that in this story? I mean, I think for me... I mean, I th- you know, the way the way that, you know, Val and I sort of negotiate, I mean, it's it's complicated and it's not even a thing I really want to talk about like a ton. But, you know, I, I think a thing that I think a lot is like if I could go back, you know, would I change it? Like if I could, would I undo it? And it's like, no, I wouldn't because it brought me this person. It brought me like the most important person in my whole life. And um, and even though like there's a lot of trauma around this ex are both our mutual ex. Um, you know, neither of us would change it for anything. And that's hard. It's hard to say that, you know, and it's hard to... Also, it's hard because I think, you know, writing this book, it's like writing about this really terrible thing that happened to me, but also, like, I've also heard, like, Val talk about it. And, like, mm. it's weird because it's, like, it's, like, externalized somehow because it's, like, it's different to hear somebody say, like, here's a thing that happened to me as opposed to, like, a thing that has happened to you personally. And it's almost makes me, like, angrier, you know? It almost, like, gives me even more feelings. And I think probably she has a similar reaction to reading this book. And so, you know, it's complicated. And, um, but I wouldn't change it for anything. And I feel very lucky that, like, you know, this one really beautiful thing came out of this really horrible thing and that feels very special and like a really rare um, gift that I don't know if I earned it but I got it so Carmen thank you so much yeah thanks for having me
Thanks, as always, for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lentiqua-Williams and me. Maria Muriel is our producer. Carolina Rodriguez is our sound engineer. Emma Forbes is our assistant producer. We love hearing from you, so email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And please leave a review. It's one of the quickest ways to help us grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.